and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. The title of this one, The Destruction of the Order of Assassins, A Lesson for Our Times. The date is October 2023, and my name is Bell Avis. War is the statesman's game, the priest's delight, the lawyer's jest, the hired assassin's trade. Percy Shelley, what is it? that seduces some young people to terrorism. It simplifies things. The fanatic has no questions, only answers. Education is the way to eliminate terrorism. Elie Weissel. In 2013, Max Boot published Invisible Armies, an epic history of guerrilla warfare from ancient times to the present. He began this nearly 600-page work with the following. For purposes of this book, Terrorism describes non-state actors directed primarily against non-combatants to intimidate or coerce them into and change their government's policies or composition. Boot distinguishes between a terrorist and a guerrilla used to describe the use of hit-and-run tactics by an armed group directed primarily against the government. On Saturday, October 7th, Thousands of Palestinian fighters poured across the border between Gaza Strip and Israel, massacring more than 1,400 Israelis, including women, children, and even infants. A rock concert attended by teenagers was attacked by fanatics using machine guns who mowed down at least 200 kids. There are even stories of decapitated babies. We do not need to speculate on whether these events are propaganda. The Palestinians recorded many acts and uploaded them to social media. Some of these uploads include scenes of raped women and, in one case, the murder of a grandma witnessed by her granddaughter. But it should be noted that currently 22 Americans are among the carnage. It is a small number relative to the number of deaths of Israelis. But one can be confident that if if 22 Americans were targeted and destroyed alone, American response and political pressure to act would be front of mind. The Palestinians that carried out these attacks are part of Hamas, an elected group that first took power in the Gaza Strip in 2005. This is not some outside group like Al-Qaeda, but this is the representative of the Palestinians. Yet, unlike the guerrillas of Spain fighting Napoleon's invading French armies, where the term guerrillas emanated, Hamas deliberately targeted civilians. And there are hostages, at least 100. Hamas's military wing, Ezzedin al-Qassam brigades, threatened to execute a civilian hostage every time civilians in Gaza die in their homes from Israeli airstrikes that come without warning. Because Israel, unlike Hamas, provides alerts of attacks in civilian areas. Hamas, though, uses locations such as schools, hospitals, and mosques as military operation centers to force Israel to take out civilian structures and religious sites. In some regards, this is more like the four wars fought between the founding of Israel in 1948 and the Yom Kippur War of 1973, than the intifada wrought by the dead and unlamented Yasser Arafat of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. 
Intifada in Arabic means roughly the shaking off, or in this context, the removal of perceived Israeli oppression. There were three intifada altogether, with the first beginning in December 1987 and ending in September 1993 with the signing of the first Oslo Accords, which provided a framework for peace negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. The second intifada began in 2000 with Arafat's rejection of peace terms that included direct rule over 91% of the West Bank. The two uprisings resulted in the death of more than 5,000 Palestinians and some 1,400 Israelis. The thinking of Hamas was that the PLO and its political arm Fatah were too timid in their dealings with Israel. In some regards, this latest movement resembles something new, a state-sanctioned attack that deliberately targets civilians as opposed to military operations. But whether it is guerrilla tactics, the Intifada, or terrorism, they all rely on that last word, terror, to carry out their means. Boots' book exhaustively covers many of these situations, but the one telling thing relevant today is that the users of these tactics understand that psychology is as much of the purpose as physical damage. And in the use of this mental conjuring, few have practiced it so well as the medieval order of assassins. Now, the word itself is an interpretation of an interpretation. The Persian translation from the Arabic is Hashashayin. Then it was further romanized as Hassassin, a word recognizable and in use today as assassin. Bernard Lewis, an eminently readable scholar of the Middle East with 12 books on the subject, began his first with a 1967 work on the assassins. It is easier to understand the origins of the order by first going back to the beginning of the Islamic split that occurred shortly after the Prophet Muhammad died in 632. Since Muhammad never designated a clear successor before his death, two rivaled groups claimed primacy. After some arguments and a moment of dangerous tension, a council agreed to appoint Abu Bakr, one of the earliest and most respected converts, as Khalifa or deputy of the prophet, thus creating almost incidentally the great historical institution of the caliphate. Those who chose Abu Bakr were representatives of the Sunni majority, named for Sunnah, or tradition. But Abu Bakr was only to live another two years, again raising the issue of succession. Even during Abu Bakr's time, some felt that Ali, as son-in-law to Muhammad, should be the choice as leader of Islam and the Arab conquest then taking place. Because at this point, it wasn't just about who would rule in Arabia, but who would rule the entire Middle East. This group became known as the followers of Ali, in Arabic, the Shi'at Ali, or simply Shia. At first, the faction around Ali was purely political, but the Islamic Arab empire grew with conquests that included the Levant, Persia, Egypt, Morocco, and the rest of North Africa. Some felt that the purity of the faith was being corrupted by the riches now pouring in, and the first major break occurred in 680 when Hussein, the son of Ali, and Muhammad's daughter Fatima, challenged the ruling caliph, now in the hands of Umayyads. In transferred power, the Umayyads were really more of a dynasty rather than deciding things in council, as was first done after the death of Muhammad. 
This revolt by Hussein was crushed and resulted in his death at the hands of other Muslims. This and another incident in 685 led to the establishment of the Shia sect. And it was the Shias who believed that they were the true protectors of the faith. After those military defeats in the late 600s, many Shia instead began their opposition to the Umayyads and later their successors to the Caliphate, the Abbasids, in legal and religious forms and were operating out of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, but not of the political centers of Damascus and Baghdad. And in one Shia subsect, in the Iranian city of Gom, Hassan I. Sabah was born in 1050. In those intervening 400 or so years between the death of Muhammad and the birth of Hassan, the world had changed a great deal. The Fatimid dynasty, a Shia-led effort, had risen, then declined in Egypt, and Arabs no longer ruled in the Middle East. Seljuk Turks, newly converted, held sway in the Levant, and though there was still an Arab Abbasid caliph in Baghdad, he reigned, but the Turks ruled. And against all of these political entities, Hassan was against all of them for not being, at least in his eyes, sufficiently faithful. We have Hassan's own words or something coming close for a source. He is thought to have written an autobiography, which did not survive but seems to underlie the first part of an anonymous biography. And the writer of this biography was what was called an Ismaili. We will get to that in a little bit about what that term means, or at least for our story here. Hassan also widely traveled, having lived in Egypt, traveled on a Frankish ship, and spent his later years working on converts in northern Iran. He was known as zealous and austere. And here are those words. There had never been any doubt or uncertainty in my faith in Islam, in my belief that there is a living, enduring, all-powerful, all-hearing, all-seeing God, a prophet, an imam, permitted things and forbidden things, a heaven and hell, commandment and forbidding. Note the use of the word imam, a title of various Muslim leaders, but especially of one succeeding Muhammad as the leader of a Shiite Islam. The Fatimids in Egypt were Shia, but the Seljuks, claiming leadership of the Islamic world, were Sunni, which Hassan would not have approved. Now, what he had done is he adopted a subset of Shia called Nizari Ismaili. And Hassan began his own order of Nizari Ismailis. And I will now forthwith use the term Nizaris and assassins interchangeably for this podcast. But understand, there are differences and there are different definitions and entomologies of these words. But simply put, it would be too complicated and complex to go into all of that here. Lewis notes, Hassan was not only occupied with winning converts to the cause, he was also concerned with finding a new kind of base, not a clandestine tryst in a city in constant danger of discovery and disruption, but a remote and inaccessible stronghold from which he could, with immunity, direct his war against the Sunni-led Seljuk Empire. And it was Alamut in northern Iran which became his headquarters, Alamut was a mountain fortress at an altitude of over 7,000 feet, located in the Iranian stanza of Kasvin, about 100 kilometers from Tehran. Though the assassins created a series of strategic strongholds scattered throughout 
Persia, which was the ancient term for Iran, and Syria, with each fortress being surrounded by swaths of hostile territory. Alamut was the most famous of these strongholds, was thought impregnable to any military attack, and was fabled for its heavenly gardens, library, and laboratories where philosophers, scientists, and theologians could debate in intellectual freedom. The stronghold survived adversaries, including the Seljuk, and later, Khwarezmian empires. Hassan and his successors began to be known by many titles, from Imam to the Grand Master of, of the Order of Assassins to the poetic Old Man of the Mountain. The defining characteristic of the assassins' Nazarius Mele state was that it was scattered geographically throughout Persia and Syria. Alamut Castle, therefore, was only one of a nexus of strongholds throughout the regions where the Nazaris could retreat to safety if necessary. Being much weaker than their main adversaries in conventional military terms, the Nazaris relied on guerrilla warfare, including espionage, infiltration of enemy territory, and targeted killings of enemy leaders. Then it's this last one, obviously, is where we think about modern-day assassins. The preferred method of killing was by dagger, nerve poison, or arrows. One of their most prominent victims was the Seljuk vizier, Nazim al-Muk, stabbed by a Nazari fighter disguised as a Sufi mystic in 1092. As word of the invisible Nazari threat spread, their opponents were forced to take various measures, traveling with bodyguards and wearing chain mail under their clothing, sometimes to no avail. European crusaders were also targeted. Conrad of Montserrat was assassinated by Nazaris days before he was to be crowned king of the crusader kingdom of Jerusalem in 1192. And among the first, the western mentions of the order are from Gerhard, who was sent to Egypt and Syria in 1175 by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. That one, the confines of Damascus, Antioch, and Aleppo, there is a certain race of Saracens in the mountains, who in their vernacular are called Hassassin, Gerhard reports. They have among them a master who strikes the greatest fear into all of the Saracen princes, both far and near. Historian Noah Tesh says of the Western view of the Assassins, Returning crusaders and travelers brought back their own stories adding sensational new details to the legend of the assassins. It was said that they were experts in the craft of murder, trained from childhood to use stealth and deceit, and were so devoted to their leader that they would sacrifice their lives for his slightest whim. Their fanatical determination resulted from intoxicating drugs or a brainwashing process in which recruits were kept in a paradisical garden stocked with fine food, and beautiful women. But legends aside, it was something more than just skills. Lewis adds, at first it was fanatical devotion rather than the murderous methods that distinguished the assassins. But through this process of stories, also perpetuated by Fatimid Seljuks and even the Franks, or any other people who had the tales, fear and terror were their greatest weapon. Easy to assess the strength of an army across a field of battle, but it is much more challenging to know when one eats or sleeps that some silent wraith may slip into your quarters and murder you. It is the image, it is the thought of the assassin 
that carried as much power as their actual acts. Though several states, including the Khwarezmians, tried to take on the assassins, their mountain strongholds and terror of reprisals kept them safe. And again, keep in mind that terror of reprisals part of it. Take them on and never get a good night's sleep again. That is, that is until they encountered a people with the military might and will to destroy them. And also these people, the Mongols, were fearless. In his book, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, Jack Weatherford writes of Hulagu, grandson of Genghis and founder of the Ilkhanate branch of the Greater Mongol Empire. For Hulagu, the ultimate prize was to conquer Baghdad, but to get there, he had to assert Mongol authority over several rebellious areas on the route. The most difficult of these was to conquer the strongholds of the Nazari Ismailis. When Genghis first appeared, the sect swore allegiance to him, thinking they could use the Mongol against their other enemies. But later, by the time of the third great Khan, Monkey, they might have changed their plans. The delegation that came to Monkey was believed not to bring submission, but to kill the Khan. Monkey then decided it was time to end the assassins. As Weatherford states, Hulagu assessed the difficulty of capturing the heavily fortified castles one by one because there may have been as many as a hundred strongholds. He instead devised a simple and more direct plan. Because of the role of the Grand Master, Hulagu concentrated on capturing him with a combination of massive military might and the offer of clemency if he should surrender. The Mongols bombarded the Ismaili stronghold of Alamut, and the Mongol warriors proved capable of scaling the steepest escarpments to surprise the defenders of the fortress. The combined force, firepower, and the offer of mercy worked, and on November 19, 1256, the current imam, Ruk al-Din Kershaw, surrendered to the Mongols. Once Hulagu had control of the imam, he paraded him, from castle to castle, to order his followers to surrender. The imam ended his days trying to see Monkey, but instead was taken into the mountains near the Mongol capital of Karakoram and stomped to death by horses. Though various pockets of resistance remained for 20 years after the capture of the Grand Master, by 1275, the Order of the Assassins was essentially destroyed. Now, for various purposes, I have oversimplified much of the belief system of Hassan and his successors. To say that his religion was simply a branch of, of Islam or of Shiism is an oversimplification. But it should also be noted that the ardent faith of the Nazari Ismailis did not at times feature politics trumping religion. When the Mongols first came on the scene and attacked the Khwarezmian Empire, a rival of the Nazaris, they received their support and sometimes sided with Sunni factions against Shia when the time suited such a decision. And there was even this. In 1271, Bohemond VI of Antioch, a crusader, enlisted the aid of the assassins against the Seljuk Sultan. Scratch the surface of what seems on the surface to be purely about religion, and below, one finds the reasons might have more to do with land, wealth, and power. By no means am I discounting the concept of religion as a driver of history. Without the unification wrought by Muhammad through the religion of Islam, this story would not have happened. The Arabian Peninsula states had been disunited before Muhammad for over 3,000 years. It was his agency that united them and his message that provided the unifying framework. 
Yet in the case of the assassins, Islam was not always the primary driver of their work, nor was religious paramount in the minds of many crusaders. I have noted in previous podcasts that when Urban II kicked off the movement, he said the wealth of the land was filled with milk and honey, meaning there was wealth there for the taking. In the case of the First Crusade, Raymond of Toulouse did not say mission accomplished and then head back home after the capture of Jerusalem. He decided it was better to stay and be the king of Jerusalem rather than the Count of Toulouse. Religion can be mixed up in politics, but what religion does provide is underlying spiritual justification to carry out certain acts and conduct oneself in a way that one might not act without religion itself. Now, this can be very beneficial. One example of that in this context is, I would argue his religion governed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to act in a non-violent fashion and be revered for it today. But faith can also create a sense of extremism leading to barbarous acts. As I noted a few podcasts ago, humans need a form of spirituality in their lives and in a vacuum may seek it in evil designs. Lewis concludes his work with the undercurrent of messianic hope and revolutionary violence impelled them to flow on and their ideals and methods found many imitators. For these, the great changes of our time have provided new causes for anger, new dreams of fulfillment, and new tools of attack. That Lewis wrote these words 56 years ago, before the surprise attack on Israel by Egypt and Syria in 1973, before the takeover by Islamists of South Lebanon in the 1980s, and before three intifadas costing thousands of Israeli in Palestinian lives. I began this podcast with a quote from Eli Weissel, no stranger to pure evil or fanaticism, having survived in the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. What is it that seduces some young people to terrorism? It simplifies things. The fanatic has no questions, only answers. Education is the way to eliminate terrorism. I agree, but only to a point. The issue is that many of those who order murder, if not the ones carrying out the order, are educated men. Hassan was a learned man and may have been a brilliant scholar. Osama bin Laden was not some illiterate peasant, but was born into a wealthy family and well-schooled and possessed of a college degree. Some people are not receptive to education or learning. They will warp whatever lessons are taught to fit their worldview. The Mongols understood that no amount of education about their rule, no accommodation, would dissuade the assassins in the long run. So their solution was more direct. Annihilate their bases and murder their leaders. If I paint the Mongols in almost heroic terms, then let me correct that. They were one of the most brutal conquerors who ever lived. They were not content to merely sack cities, but wipe them out of existence. It was not just millions of lives lost. Their raising of the Library of Baghdad, in which a million books were destroyed, is an incalculable loss to historians and to humanity itself. Centuries of accumulated knowledge gathered from all corners of the globe, involving mathematics, history, astronomy, and medicine, were lost in a week. It may have been the single greatest loss of knowledge in the history of the world. So no, the Mongols are not heroes, but they are definitely teachers. And here are their lessons. 
Do not be content to stop those who were ordered, but rather target those giving the orders. Do not be complacent when terror is not evident. Know that it will rise again if not addressed. And have the moral, physical, and mental fortitude to do the work necessary to eliminate that threat for all time. As an order, the assassins have been gone for a thousand years, but their spirit of terror is evident this very week, and it must be stopped.